Hear these words from the book that we love. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans and to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, everybody, for joining us this morning. It's a weird passage. Let me start this way. Uh, when my son was five or six years old, this is like 2017, 2018, he was asking me all these questions about time, particularly about years. And he knew what year it was. It was like 2017, 2018 or something. And he said, Dad, what year was it before the year one? And so I'm like, okay, how do I explain this to a kid that like, Okay, so I'm like, okay, so you go down to the year one, A.D. or uh, uh, C.E., and then before year one, there was another year one, uh, B.C. or B.C.E., and then it kind of went up from there. (laughs) So it kind of went backwards, you know? It would kind of go like 2019 backward to year one, and then one up to thousands of years, you know, you you would have on and on and on for eons. And he's like, so time went backward? And I'm like, oh, no, that's not it. How do I explain this to him? I'm like, okay, okay, so say uh, there's a day you're really looking forward to, like Christmas or your birthday or like the day vacation starts. When, when you're getting closer to it, you start almost like counting down, like 10 days away, nine days away, eight days away until it gets there. And then once it gets there, you look back on it and you say, okay, that was one, year, one day since it happened, two days since it happened. I thought this was a pretty good way of explaining it. I thought it made sense to him. And, and I said, do you understand it? And he said, yes, but I really don't know if he still, he still understood it. And there's, 
if you relate to young kids, there's one million things like this. That it's like, how do I? This is a vast concept. Time. You, you never think about it until you, you just try to explain it to somebody who's really, really not used to it. And in the scriptures, again and again, there's an incident where it's like God's like, how do I explain this to them? How does the infinite explain things to the finite? You know, how does someone who has comprehension of heavens and earth explain something to, to these people who I love, but it's like, is there even a faculty that can comprehend it? Well, it's the heart, you know, not, not strictly the mind only, but like stuff doesn't get to the heart so easy. You know, you know, the heart's grasping everything in the world, and here I am trying to say I love you, but they just can't get the message I'm giving to them in creation and the scriptures and the prophets and the priests. And how in the world do I express this? And well, this is a passage where God, God basically says, read my lips. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be as clear as I can, but it's still a stretch. And he gives him two pictures, two really different pictures to describe to Abram, who we're told in the New Testament is God's friend. Somebody that God wants to relate to. And he's like, all right, man, I'm trying to explain to you not just what I'm doing uh, in my confusing plan to bless the world, but I'm also trying to show you something of who I am. How in the world are we going to comprehend God? Only if God gives us the pictures that we can grasp from the heart. Two pictures. One is stellar. I mean, literally, he shows them the stars. One's stellar and one's more gritty. I think of one of, like, one of, one of the pictures he gives them uh, is, is in the heavens, the other's on the earth. One's beautiful, and the other's actually bloody. Those are the two points. God shows Abram, and really a way that the New Testament writers thousands of years later are fascinated with. I mean, I'm thinking of the book of Romans, if you've ever read that letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. He, in chapter 4, just digs into these pictures that God gives Abram here. So this is really a foundational chapter, as confusing and strange as, as it is, for the church. Two pictures, something beautiful and something bloody to show us who God is and what he's doing. So first, the beautiful thing, the beautiful thing God shows Abram. So if, you're, if, you're not, if you've not been with us since the beginning of the Abram story in Genesis 12, we're in chapter 15 now, the fourth chapter into this story, God calls this guy Abram, as it says in this passage, out of this faraway land of Ur, and God says to Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and your offspring, your children, and your children's 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 children, are going to bless the entire world. Even though, at the time that God made that promise, Abram had no offspring, his wife was barren, incapable of having children, and he was 75 years old. So the promise was really, really, really unlikely to say the least. And step by step, as the Apostle Paul later describes it, in Romans 4, looking back on this passage, says, this is a guy that was step by step walking in the steps of faith, not knowing how in the world this promise was going was gonna to happen. And this is about 10 years in now. Genesis 15 is about just shy of 10 years after God has made this promise to Abram. 
And he's gone to a war during this time. He's, he's found himself trapped in Egypt, and God just set him free. He's been trusting God along the way 10 years in, but still there's no, there's no payoff on this promise that God's going to give him offspring, and through this offspring, through this offspring, God's going to bless the world. And God actually shows up here in verse 1 and 2, if you want to look back on page 3. And he says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. So 10 years later, God comes again with this message of comfort and saying, I'm right here with you. And by the way, he's trying to say, I've been with you all along. I'm your shield. That means I've been blocking all these evils that have been coming upon you, even though life has been crazy scary the last 10 years, if you read the last few chapters. I'm your shield. I'm your reward. But instead of being comforted, in verse 3, Abram's actually kind of confounded. It's like he says, great, but I'm still waiting here. Verse 3, he says, you've still given me no offspring. I'm still without a child here. And I don't have any idea what in the world you're doing. By the way, this is a tension that runs through the whole Abram story. And if you, if you know the story, you know there's a good number of chapters left in it. There's this God saying, believe, 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 and showing up again before the promises have actually been fulfilled and saying, hang in there. Don't stop believing. I'm here. Believe. Trust me. Believe. And Abram spends some time believing, and then faith falters a little bit. In one scenario after another, Abram, it's like he's being educated in helplessness. It's like he's being educated in reliance for years at a time. Think about this. When you are really self-reliant, when things are going relatively well, there's no hiccups, life's plan is coasting, are you more or less likely to rely on God's provision in your life? Less. Why do I need him again? I mean, we have this conversation. You have this conversation. You have this conversation with yourself. And you definitely have this conversation if you are a person of faith with those who don't. I, why, why do you need this? What, 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 what practical use do you have for somebody outside of yourself to offer some kind of provision that you think you need spiritually or otherwise? By the way, that's aspects of that, or at least aspects of where that question comes from out of the heart, is a very 20th and 21st century question. Because life was unsteady as anything for like every century until the last one. Life expectancy, low. Expectancy that you'd make your way through childbirth, low. Susceptibility to disease and plunder. <laughs> Awareness of human rights, low. Even so, in the ancient world, they had these seasons of like, I'm, I'm doing okay here. Why, why do I need God again? And God keeps very strategically putting him in places of saying, do you remember why? Like your whole life, to say nothing of the lives of the entire human race, are in my control, and that's actually a good thing. Abram in this scene is like, look, it's hard to wait, though. I get it. It's hard to wait. I'm facing the death of my hopes. I'm facing the death of my body. I'm 85 here. And this promise I've been living for is nowhere to be found. And I want it. This is 10 years of dashed hopes. What's going on? I know some of you, maybe not all of you, but at least some of you are familiar with the Narnia Chronicles by C.S. Lewis. Um, they made the movies a couple years back, the first three anyway. There's seven books. The fourth book is this book called The Silver Chair. And without giving too much away, 
it's, um, it's a depressing book. And at kind of at the climax, there's the scene where they find each other. It's these children going on a journey, and their guide is this pretty depressed dude named Puddleglum. The name says it all. But they find themselves really at the climax of this book in this underground cave area under the spell of a witch. And the entire strategy of this witch is to keep all of the people that come into her sphere of influence totally convinced that all that exists in the world is this cave that they find themselves in. You're underground. And she starts saying things to them as they're talking about getting out of the cave. She's like, what are, what are you talking about? This is, this is your life. There's no, there's no sky. There's no, there are no stars. There is no earth. There's just the cave. Here you are. There's, there's never been anything else. And slowly, 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 they fall under the spell and they all believe it. And they don't even try to get out because they're completely convinced that my life is this cave. It's totally contained and there's nothing outside of it until this Puddleglum character who is just old enough to see through what she's doing. He's got this great line. And he says, listen, lady, you can play that fiddle all day until your fingers drop off. It's a great line. Play that fiddle all day until your fingers drop off. I've seen the sky. I've seen the stars. The sky full of stars. I've seen the sun coming up out of the sea in the morning and sinking behind the mountains at night. And I've seen the midday sky when I couldn't even look at the sun because it was so bright. And slowly as he was talking, it's like everybody who hears him talking slowly start to come awake. There's actually a passage that, that's in line with this in Ephesians 5. The Apostle Paul has been very tenderly trying to tell this confused church, really the church of the region in Asia Minor, how, how much he loves them. But in chapter 5, he just starts to, almost shouting at them. He's like, wake up. Wake up, sleepers, and rise from the dead. Just open your eyes because you're looking at the floor of a cave, it feels like sometimes, and you forget that this is God that we're dealing with. It's like you've forgotten that he can do anything. Wake up. By the way, it's not just the church. It's also pastors who get in this place where they actually believe that the world is a cave. It's a completely contained and controlled system in a cave that God can't intervene in. He can't intervene in. There's this beautiful passage in one of our oldest works of pastoral theology in church history. In the 6th century, Gregory the Great, he wrote a book called The Book of Pastoral Rule. And there's this section where he criticizes pastors called hunchback pastors. He says, here's why I call you all hunchback pastors. It's because you spend all of your time like bent over looking at all the most base things in human existence. Death, you're doing funerals. Sin, you're walking with people. Why are they stuck again? Budgets, oh my goodness, why don't we have any money to do anything anymore? Plagues, people don't have jobs, mental health, demonic attacks. And he's like, all of that is your work. Fine, don't ignore that it exists. But do you realize that your, your back is so hunched over, you can't offer anyone salvation? Because that's... That's your world. God help us if our pastors become about managing problems, our own or yours. Yeah, it's part of the work. But he's trying to say, look up. This is Abraham's world right now. Ten years in, this sucks. And what does God do? Here's what he does. 
in verse 5, all he does is say, Abram, I want you to walk out of your tent with me. Stop looking at the floor of your tent. Walk outside. Let me just read verse 5. That's the context. Look how beautiful verse 5 is. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. God is saying, how can I explain to this guy that there's a sky? <laughs> Look up. Look up the way you did when we started off together. Look up the way that you did for the first few years of our journey together. And finish your journey looking up. Look up and count the stars. I mean, I know we look up and count the stars, we see like seven because it's the city. You know, in, in, in the Middle East, in the Middle East, I mean, my goodness, 4,000 years ago, you saw every one almost. I mean, every one the eye could possibly take in like by a telescope today that's not like one of these powerful telescopes. Like every one that in the country or in like Iowa somewhere that you can get from like a reasonably priced microscope today, you could see then, like with your naked eye. And there's no possible way you could, you could go like that and even count half of the ones that were in your field of vision. Count them all. And he says, I'm the God of that. Now, tell me again what I can't do for you. I'm the God of that. Tell me again why my promises are impossible for you. That's the scene. Look to me, God says, for vast, powerful, and beautiful things. Not easy things. I'm not the God of the easy. But I am the God of the impossible, the beautiful, the saving the vast. Look to me for vast, powerful, beautiful, saving things. Why does he say this? Because Abram is looking at the floor and so are we. And because he's a father, like we prayed, like really, really a father, like he knows the stuff that have, has your eyes on the floor. Like he knows that you're losing your pastor. And he knows that your relationship is really stuck. And he knows way better than you most altruistic, God bless you, reminding us to pray over the violence of the city. He knows every name. He hasn't forgotten one single one of the thousands of people who have lost their lives to gun violence in the last decade in this city. And he knows the ones who were shot yesterday. He knows all the stuff that's on the floor. He knows all of it. But the story is not the floor. The story is the stars. The story begins and ends with the one who made all things and makes big promises. Verse 6, it just says, Abram believed and God said, that's all I want from you. It says Abram believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's like if you can believe that, if you can believe that I'm the God of the stars and that actually makes a difference for your life today, like you're in my grip too, just like Alpha Centauri is in my grip, then we can walk together. Don't stop looking up. That's the first sign, something beautiful. The second sign, and a little bit more briefly here, is, is really weird. And this is the weird part of the chapter. It's something bloody. Here's the scene. After 
after Abram says, okay, all right, Lord, I'm yours again. I believe you, as God always does. He, he reveals himself to faith. Not to the one who like, kind of gets out of his calculator and says, all right, okay, here's how, here's how I still don't really trust. Here's, here's like, the likelihood that this is going to happen. No, they simply believe and trust, and God reveals more. And what he reveals is this really bloody scene. But it was actually a really, really familiar bloody scene in the ancient world. Here's what happens. Let's say in the ancient world you wanted to make a contract. Particularly, let's say you were a king of a kingdom. And it was, it was kind of something that you were going around and doing is you were gathering up all the other little kingdoms. Basically, like you put them to the point of the sword and say, do you want to become part of my bigger kingdom or do you want to die? And then you're like, I'll take the first one. And they're like, that's very smart. Let's make an agreement together about how you're going to serve me and I will offer you my protection and other resources and other food. And here's what you would do. As bloody as this sounds, this was common practice. You would take animals and cut them in half. And you'd put half the animals over to this side, and you'd put half the animals over to this side, just like we read about in Genesis 15. And here's what would happen. Both parties would ceremonially walk through these divided pieces, you know, blood all over the ground. And what's the symbolism? Symbolism is, if I don't keep up my end of the contract, may this happen to me. Usually, both parties did it. It was a treaty. It was a contract. And again, God's saying, okay, how do I explain to this finite creature how I want to relate to him? Because he's still asking questions. How can this be? How can this be? God shows him this in response. Here's what God means by showing Abram this. And here's what it means for us. God is saying, First of all, Abram, if I don't keep my promise to you, God is saying this. If I don't keep my promise to you, may this happen to me. How would a king even say that to a subject to say nothing of God saying that to a creature? We have a God that condescends like that. It's an education in who God is. First of all, God is saying, if I don't keep my promise to you, Abram, let this happen to me. Secondly, it, it's more than that. Interestingly, in Genesis 15, it's not two parties. It's not like God and Abram walk through these pieces. Only one thing passes through, or really like this compound image. Abram doesn't walk through the pieces. These symbols of the divine pass through. Fire and smoke which if you know the stories of Genesis, uh, excuse me, the stories in Exodus, God's presence with the people of Israel are symbolized with fire and with cloud. This is an image of God, an image of the divine. God himself alone passes through these bloody pieces. What does that mean? It means God says, this promise is on me. If you trust me, if you trust me, that's it. Again and again, again and again, Israel, throughout the history of the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testaments, they're worshiping idols. They're turning away. They're neglecting the Ten Commandments. Like, as soon as Moses comes down the mountain, as soon as he comes down the mountain, they're worshiping an idol. And again and again and again and again, God says, there are going to be consequences for that, but I will not. I swear on myself, I will not. I will never go back on the promise I made. 
Because it's not dependent on him. It's dependent on me. This promise is about me. God is saying to, to Abram and to you and to me, I don't have something stronger to swear by than myself. And I'm actually swearing on my own self-harm. I'm going to do what I say. Will you trust me? Can I show you this, Abram, in stronger, more life and death detail? Yes, you're my instrument, but in a bigger sense, this isn't so much about you, this story I'm telling through your family. This isn't so much about you as it is about my promise to heal the world I love. And there's one more thing he's showing him. He's showing him, I keep my promises. He's saying, this is on me. Bottom line, what I say I'm going to do. And thirdly, a lot of theologians have recognized over the centuries that God is showing Abram how he plans to take on himself the curse that will come on humans for breaking their part of the covenant. And this goes back to the garden. From the very first sin, human beings have been experiencing the consequences of leaving God. The consequence is death. That is the fruit of sin, the, ne the necessary thing that comes out of sin. And God is here saying, at the end of the day, it's not humanity that's going to get torn apart for its waywardness. It's not humanity that's going to pay the ultimate consequence for sinning, for breaking covenant, for betraying their God. I will take on the debt for all of the sins you and your children will sin against me. I will be torn apart, not you. I myself will be the merciful, gracious substitute, even though you may betray this covenant every day of your life. Thomas Hayes put it this way, if this is all a little bit cloudy. He says, Genesis 15 shows us that when it should be you and I who walk through the valley of death, there stands God in our place. There walks God. There, in Christ, hangs the Son of God. To there God descends. From there he rises and ascends. With perfect love, God says, be not afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. God is the smoking fire pot, the blazing torch. His name is Jesus. It's a picture. It's a picture that's foreign to you and me, but it would have been jaw-dropping to Abram, who saw this kind of covenant happen in his day. God, so you're telling me that though I tend to be faithless sometimes, you're going to keep your word to a fallen man like me to give me more than I could ever deserve to bless a guilty world. That's it. That's who God is. That's what God does. And that's what God does for you. Listen, when we say things like, Jesus can forgive anything, it's his character to let him cost him to love you. Let me say that again. The reason why heaven will be filled with murderers and adulterers and thieves and slanderers and lazy people is because God is 
love. And the greatest expression of that love is love for enemies. And if ever you've woken up in the morning feeling like an enemy of God, in the church you should feel right at home. Because it is the company of those who have been loved by a God who swears by himself and doesn't let his plans to bless the world depend on our frailty and fallenness and sin. That's the God you serve. And that's good news, not just for those who keep their eyes on the floor, forgetting the plan of God. That's good news for those who attack the God of the plan and say, forget you most days. And say, get out of my way most days. The arms are ever open to forgive. God's going to do this through Abraham's family. He's going to bring ultimate forgiveness and freedom and salvation to the world through Christ, the seed of Abram. That's where the whole Bible is going. But for today, I just want to add, I, I want to end like this. There is something that, again, I keep, if, if you're interested in more reading on this chapter, the best commentary I can give you is Romans chapter 4 in the New Testament of your Bible. It's the Apostle Paul just saying, just look at Genesis 15. Just, just look what's going on in Genesis 15 and how it's good news for you. What falls to Abram? It's actually a little tougher than it might seem. God says, Abram, just trust me. As I've been saying, I think more and more, because it's been at work in my own heart, is when God says, just believe, don't, don't doubt me, he doesn't just mean check a box, check a box in your head where you say, in theory, I believe there's a God and that he loves me. I believe that there's a Savior and his name's Jesus. That's not the faith that's being talked about here. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 4, verse 12, the kind of faith talked about in Genesis 15 is walking in footsteps of faith. What does that mean? That means singing that last song that we sang, He Will Hold Me Fast, like it's true. That means walking today like there's more true than the floor. That means walking today like there's a God who created all things and cares about what you're going through now. That means walking today like there is a God who can pull you right through death by his power, wrought in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to bring you all the way home, not because you deserve it, but because he loves you. That's not a box you check. That's someone you entrust your life to. That's the faith of Abraham. Brothers and sisters, get your eyes off the floor. Never, ever, ever forget the stars. He can do anything. And he doesn't need your list of good deeds to welcome you into his presence. He also, though, isn't just looking for you to check a box. You're like, yeah, in theory, I believe that God's out there somewhere and Jesus is a thing, and sure, check my box as a Christian. I think I got baptized at some point. No. Give him your allegiance. I wonder sometimes if what we most American Christians think of as faith would be better described as allegiance. We pledge it to the flag. I mean, my kids still do. I was in their elementary school. What does that mean? It's like I'm, I'm still under it. I'm still under it. 
I said this on Good Friday when we did that combined service with Urban Worship Center about the last words of Jesus on the cross. The very last words of Jesus, he's quoting his second Psalms quote from the cross, Psalm 31, verse 5, where he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. That, that's a lot like what we sang, he will hold me fast earlier today. That doesn't just mean like, I check the box, I think you're there. It means you hold my life. Jesus is saying, keep my life in the refuge that is your name, your presence, your power. You take everything from me. I give it to you. I entrust it all to you. The faith of Abraham is a life of taking shelter under the promises of God. And brothers and sisters, I just want to ask you as you come to this table. Are you taking shelter with your whole life, not just your thoughts, but your body, your heart, your goals, your dreams, your finances, your sex life? Are you saying, I put myself in the refuge that is God? Do I commit it to him? Is it his or is it mine? Is it his or is it mine? Abram believed God. He said, okay, yeah, okay, I see the stars. I also see the blood. I see what kind of God you are. I'm yours. I, I'm yours. Not, not one part of my experience do I want hanging out of the refuge that is you. You cover all of it. All of it. It's yours. That's, that's Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Not because he was a good boy. He said, I'm done for if it's me. But if it's you, take it all. Brothers and sisters, there's got to be one thing. That does not mean perfection. That does not mean you never tremble when you look at what you're actually facing in this world. It just means, just means, if he's there and he's God, you can give it all to him. Your future, your frustration, your hopes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.